Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra, your host. This is a podcast series amplifying raw human stories, tackling racism and inequalities in life and in work. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join me. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, we know that change is happening. So why not come along and be part of that change? Colin, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out to join me today. I know you're like extremely busy. This is the highlight of my day. (laughs) Thank you, Sandra. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You came and did some work for us, didn't you, at my job? And we had a really amazing discussion on immigration. But before we get into the depths of that, could you tell our audience, who are you? So who is Colin Grant? He's six foot three. He's a black (laughs) man. He's from Luton, which is uh, 30 miles north of the capital, London in the UK. He's the child of Jamaican parents who came to the UK in 1959. He started off adult life as a medical student for long, hard, arduous years before he dug out through a tunnel to the world of literature. And he's written several plays and he's now on his sixth book. All of his books are really focused on the African diaspora or Africa itself but really black people and what they think and what they do and what's been done to them over the years has been my subject in virtually all of my books. So what made you want to become a writer? Like, what was that journey like for you? Well, there are two strands to that. The first strand is the more attractive, perhaps. It's that I wanted to be my uncle. So Mm. I came from a family where there was one book in the house, and that was the Bible. We're very familiar with the Bible. Mostly we enjoyed the Old Testament rather than the New But there was one member of our extended family, Uncle Viv, Vivian Wellington Adams, who wrote poetry and even had a short collection of poems published. And he was a kind of adult when I was a child of, say, nine or ten, who would kneel down and speak to the children. And he seemed to be very enthralled about the interior lives of our young selves. And we were enthralled by him, so much so that we'd pick up these strange little booklets and start to conjure the world that he'd conjured in his writing. So that's where it began. There was something noble about writing and something odd and strange, but edifying too, in the attempt to capture the essence of something. Mm. So I was enamoured of my uncle. And he was a kind of model for me in my early adulthood. But when I started off at university, I started off at the London Hospital in Whitechapel in the 1980s. And in the 1980s at medical school, typically in my year, there were 100 students. 90 of those students were men. 10 were women. So mm-hmm. the competition to get a girlfriend was fierce. If you played rugby, you had a very good chance. If you were in the dramatic society, you also had a very good chance. I was in neither. So I worked out that I needed to have some unique selling point as far as the women were concerned. So I decided to write a play and I would audition one or two of the women. And I wrote throughout my medical years, mostly plays that were put on in what we call pubs, pub theatres, small venues, really. 
And from there, I um, eventually wormed my way into prose. But prior to that, I'd also dabbled a little bit with poetry myself because when I was a medical student, we had a very fine surgeon who specialized in the thyroid glands, removing the thyroid gland, thyroidectomies. It was a very long operation. She was called Rita Orton. She was the granddaughter of W.H. Orton. And during her four or five hour long theatre operations, she would insist that the students came armed with a poem to relieve the boredom, but you had to write your own poems. And so to ensure that the session went speedily, we wrote very, very long poems. So I was the master of hour long poems before giving up and turning to the theatre. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a bad way to get started. I quite like that. That's a great story. (laughs) I love your uncle, by the way. Uncle Viv is going to feature in the next book. I've got a new book, which I'm about to submit. Well, here we are towards the end of August 2021, and I've got a week to submit to my publisher a new memoir, which is called How Many Miles to Babylon? Wow. Which is an old children's rhyme, actually, about this fabled place called Babylon, which is also a place of danger. And in the children's rhyme, you go with your candle. You must get to Babylon and back before your candle blows out. And in a way, I liken that to the adventure of migrants going to a foreign land with the dream of returning before their candle blows out, before Mm. they lose their essence. But Uncle Viv uh, features in that book as well because... We have developed a rather funny, I think, slightly collegiate, but also competitive relationship because we're both writers. And he's always teasing me because I think in a way he wants to be me (laughs) (laughs) because I've had life a little easier than him because he surfaced at a time in Britain when there weren't too many black writers around and so he didn't Mm. get much attention. And I've surfaced a bit later when you get a bit more attention. I remember starting the piece by saying, my uncle Viv wants to be me. He claims otherwise but it's true. He also claims that I'm not a real black man. He said, (laughs) which black man would uh, live in a place called Brighton, ride a bicycle, eat lentils, wear sandals, and allow his children to call him by his first name? That's in a chapter for this new book, which is called I'm Black, So You Don't Have to Be, is the name of the chapter. And that's the phrase that Uncle Viv often throws at me. He says that he's arrived at a time when he can only be identified as black. People don't see him as anything other than his pigment. He's going to allow that to happen so that that doesn't have to happen to me, that I can be Colin, that people don't see my pigment first. They just see... Well, that's what we want for everyone, right? That's what we want for everybody. (laughs) That's exactly what we want. So you talk about your uncle and how that resonates with me is because he talks about you know, a time where I'm sure it would have been really difficult to be a published author. And especially publishing spaces are so white, right? Even now, I mean, I know that lots of kind of publishing companies are releasing statements saying, you know, they want to support more Black authors. But there's so many of those stories we don't have that weren't published. There were lots of those stories around that we don't get to see or get to hear. Like, and that's part of our Black history, right? Absolutely. And it wasn't so long ago. I remember when I first dabbled a toe in being published in a book, I was admiring of an independent agent who'd been part of a big literary agency here in London. And I always admired him. And I sent him a story, which I hoped he would take and use and perhaps secure a commission for me. And he wrote back very quickly to say that he was not interested in ethnic writing. Thank you very much. That's 25 years ago or so. 
Sadly, a few months after sending him that story, that agent tripped down his stairs and broke his neck and died. But there's no correlation between his rejection of me and him dying, I should add. Yes, it's just good to clear that up. Yeah, just for our listeners. (laughs) You came and you spoke at one of our meetings and you talked about your book, Homecoming, Voices of a Windrush Generation. Yeah. And you shared the most magical stories from people you met on that journey in writing that book. Mm. Do you mind sharing some of those stories with our listeners? I mean, people really wanted to hear more and more about the people you met along that journey. Well, it was great, actually. It was a lovely journey because I was capturing these people who are towards the ends of their lives now. When you get to be really old, you kind of don't care. You just let it all hang out. You Mm. are unguarded. And so I had some very, very frank interviews with people. Sometimes they went on for two or three hours. Often they were quite emotional, but equally they were very sort of sassy, some of these people, very sharp. One of my favourites, a woman called Louise Smith, who's in her 80s now, and she talked about the fact that people talk about England being the mother country, but she <laughs> she was of the opinion that England was no mumma to me, and that England treated people rather rudely, and that the so-called fabled hostile environment, which refers to a a phrase that came into being in 2012 with the introduction of a hostile way of treating so-called illegal immigrants introduced by a woman called Theresa May in 2012. That hostile environment began way earlier. That even was there from the 1940s. So that's what Louise Smith is referring to when she says, England is no woman to me. But Mm -hmm. also I love the way that these early pioneers just took things on the chin But also they celebrated lovely little things. So if you can imagine being a traveller, a migrant, who's going to leave your comfortable home Mm -hmm. and travel 4,000 miles, you're a teenager. Many of these people are teenagers. But they've heard about this great metropolis, London, with these wonderful names like Oxford Circus, Trafalgar Square, Piccadilly Circus. And there's a man called Wallace Collins who typified what would happen back in the 50s and 60s. People would come and they'd be so excited and want to relay their excitement back home to the Caribbean to tell people that they'd reached these Mm. tourist places and they'd stand, for instance, like Wallace Collins stood at Trafalgar Square, a pigeon came and dropped something on his head. He worked Mm. at what that was. And he wrote back to his family, I am making history. I am making history. And I love that idea that there's wonderful innocence this wonderful sense of adventure. You get that all the way through the book. But equally, you get people who are kind of surprised, delighted by the reception, sometimes very good reception. My uncle's in the book, Uncle Viv, the aforementioned <laughs> Viv, is in the book. And he talked about coming on an airplane in 1961 to England. Mm-hmm. And when he's waiting for his uncle, his own uncle, to pick him up in the forecourt, he spies the captain of the plane who comes over and salutes him and says, have you just come off the plane from Jamaica? And Viv says, yes. And the captain says, well, then, let me be the first to welcome you to England. Welcome home. And he saluted him, turned on his heels and walked away. And Viv thought, wow, what a wonderful start to a new adventure, to have such a lovely welcome home. So those stories permeate the book. But equally, there's some harsh stories. There's a familiar phrase which people in the UK will know of, and there may be an equivalent in America. Maybe not, because America's an immigrant country, essentially. Mm -hmm. But here in the UK... In the 50s and 60s, migrants were not welcome, especially if they were black or Irish migrants. Mm-hmm. So there would be signs in windows of prospective landlords and also in shops, adverts for people who were renting rooms. And the signs would say, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. They weren't welcome. And there's a woman called Waverly Bushel, 
wonderful woman in her 90s now from British Guyana. And she said she would ring ahead to the prospective landlord to alert them to the fact that she was black, just to get that out of the way so they wouldn't waste each other's time. And Waverly says, till today, she can't walk down a path, climb the steps, knock on the front door, if she suspects that door will be opened by a white person. The trauma is deep. The trauma is buried into their souls, Mm. and it hasn't gone away. And I captured that in the book, because sometimes you hear these stories and you think they might be apocryphal. But when you hear 10, 20, 50, 100 of the same stories, you realise that these stories were universal. Everybody had these same experiences. And I captured that in the book. But because there's so many of them, that Mm. individual story is amplified and you can't deny it. Yeah. My family are, you know, we're from Haiti, so we are immigrants to the Mm -hmm. US. And so we've got our own immigration story. And, you know, we'll talk about this at another time because there's some really interesting aspects of that story as well. I remember how difficult it was for my grandparents to find work. Mm -hmm. Um, And my grandmother ended up working in a factory where she hardly spoke any English at all. And all of the people in the factory, they only spoke Spanish. So she had to learn how to speak Spanish literally within a matter of a few months. And Mm -hmm. she became very, very fluent in Spanish because she was so nervous she wouldn't find another job. And my grandfather was the same. He came and worked for a very famous bakery. And he was in charge of the icing at this very (laughs) famous bakery. And he worked there 40 years. Um, You know, and again, was once he'd gotten the job, was really nervous about going anywhere else in case he found it difficult to get a job because of the way he was treated. And he had a very strong accent. You know, they they didn't speak English very well at the time. But that's part of our history that we, you know, we are immigrants here as well. And the way that we were treated as Haitians, people treated us really, I mean, we were treated by Black people and white people quite uh, really, really horribly. That's very strange to me because throughout my life, my adult life, Haiti has always loomed large as a kind of ideal because of its place in the kind of African diaspora and the sense of it being an independent nation one of the first to rid themselves of the people who were enslaving them. And so for people to forget that and to treat people so shamefully is um, shocking, actually. It's shocking. But only, anyway, it's shocking in any way that people treat anyone badly when you realise that everybody is a migrant in some way. The world can be divided into those who stay in and those who go, but actually everybody is a product of people who've been on the move. We're all in search of a better life. When they move to another place, they're trying to better themselves but also to better their lives of the people that they leave behind because there's a great remittance culture. And we're all in this great big soup together. And I think we should remember that. Yeah, absolutely. I also think people don't know their history. I mean, I didn't learn about Haiti's history as a child. Obviously, I I grew up Haitian, so I knew the history through my Mm. family, but I wasn't taught this in school. It wasn't part of the school curriculum. And so Black Americans weren't even aware of the history. So you get that as well of Black history is everyone's history, right? It's part of everyone's history. Absolutely. Um, But you need custodians, you need gatekeepers. Recently on this new platform that I've helped launch called Writers Mosaic here in the UK, which is a platform for writers of colour, essentially, who've been marginalised in the past and haven't had the platforms, it's to give them a break. But I talked to this amazing woman 
amazing woman called Margaret Busby, who's the youngest 70-something-year-old I've ever met. There's more energy than me. Uh, she could leave me standing. And she, in the 1960s, was the first female black publisher in the UK. She formed a company called Alison and Busby. She's Margaret Busby. And she talked about the fact that one of the earliest books that she published was a book by C.L.R. James called The Black Jacobins. It had been published in the 1930s and it had been forgotten. It had been eclipsed. And but for Margaret Busby, that book might never have come back into the public domain here in the UK. So it's not just writing books, it's having people who are going to champion those books and champion those great characters uh, like C.L.R. James, who uh, wrote about the Haitian Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Let me ask you, has anything changed for you since the Black Lives Matter movement? Like, what, what are you noticing? What are you noticing that's different for you as a Black writer? In all honesty, at some level, it's a good time to be Black. And I say that because some white people who have had their hands on the levers of social control have woken up to the fact that they live in a multicultural society and they can't perpetuate the myth that we are still living in a homogenous society where white people run the show and just reward each other. So a few publishers have been, excuse the pun, bending over backwards to include people like me on their books. I've never been so inundated with requests I'm in the position now, and my wife is thankful of me turning down requests, although I've never turned down a request from you, Sandra. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) There's this great uh, beginnings of a renaissance in black writing. I mean, what's been lovely for me personally is to find that there's so many writers out there uh, writing in a fantastic way, different genres, crime writing, thriller writing, children's writing, uh, screenwriters, lots of poets. And when I first began writing, maybe in a kind of arrogant way, I just assumed that there's nobody else out there. But uh, I just just look at my shoulder now, and there's hundreds of black writers in the UK, and they're getting more chances. And actually, they are explaining to the culture, the culture needs explaining, that actually we are embedded in the culture. We're no longer in the margins. We're actually in the centre or becoming closer to the centre. Anyway, I mean, there's still lots of ways that we need to improve and make sure that more voices are heard. But what's great about it is that I think Black Lives Matter has galvanised this great interest, but also it's culminated also at a time when a number of important black writers have been lionised, been praised, won big awards, people like Bernadine Evaristo, Raymond Antipas, who won a a, um, Ted Hughes Prize a couple of years ago, Roger Robinson won the T.S. Eliot Prize just two years ago, Monique Rothy from Trinidad won the Costa Book Prize, and Ingrid Passord. It just goes on and on and on. And so suddenly you feel that there's a great hinterland of black writers out there doing wonderful, illuminating, innovative writing. And so I'm really delighted and so thrilled to be a part of it, but also to be able to read all of this fantastic literature, which is wending its way. I mean, I'm looking at my shelves now, and um, there are several authors who your listeners may not have heard of, people like Kai Miller, wonderful poet. He's got a book just come out called uh, Things I Have Withheld. I've just um, interviewed yesterday Colson Whitehead, who you'll be familiar with, the great African-American writer who was responsible for the Underground Railroad. His book, Harlem Shuffle, which is uh, what is masquerading as a crime novel, that comes out here in the UK. This comes out in the, in the USA shortly as well. 
But I think people like Colson Whitehead and Daryl Pinckney, Ralph Ellison, Tony Morrison, these are people that I grew up with. And in a way, they're still on the shelves of many black writers like me because they've inspired us to try to reach for the heights that they've managed to reach themselves. So it's a good time to be black and long may it last. Long may it last indeed. Colin, it's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you giving up your time. Thank you for all of the work that you're currently doing. Really looking forward to seeing how Writer's Mosaic takes shape and where that goes. And the support you're giving to Black writers is just phenomenal. Like we so need these spaces. They're just so important for us right now, especially. I guess the last thing I'd want to find out, what would you say to publishing companies who are not on board, who are not seeing this as an important part of the work that they do? Well, if they don't listen very soon, they will become irrelevant. Absolutely. They should either get on board or move out of the way because that truck is coming, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Whether you like it or not. In Jamaica, we say, we reach, we reach, (laughs) and we're not going back. We've taken the ground and we're not giving it up. So get ready, accept it. The new reality is already here and you better wake up and smell the coffee. Love that. I love that. Colin, thank you so much. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. And thank you for all you're doing to amplify our voices, our collective voices. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at necessary underscore rebels underscore pod. This was an II Studios production. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and give us any feedback as we're always trying to be better. And stay tuned for our next episode.